Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barr and I've got a, a brilliant collection of tracks today all related to the now legendary reissue label RPM and I've got one of the co-founders of the label here today, Mark Stratford. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Jason, and hello to you. The first track was uh, A Little Bit of Soul by Iron Cross and uh, that song was part of a series of what's now known as sort of junk shop glam collections that RPM yes. released. Yeah, that's right. Um, of the series that we did, which is Velvet, started with Velvet Tin Mine, Bob Stanley that uh, gave that album that name as um, you know a nice homage to Velvet Goldmine. And from that, we then did Glitter Best, um, Bubble Pop. I just thought we'd do one other. And Boobs. <laughs> and Iron Cross is on Boobs. And, uh, we, and, and Boobs was named that was me but uh it was because i remember in the 70s there were lots of uh discotheque nightclubs as they called them and they all had names like boobs um but i remember a, a bunch of other names and i was talking to bob stanley about some of these names and he said oh yeah i'm sure there was one in croydon called boobs so it's not entirely made up <laughs> 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 a, uh, there really was one called Boobs. Um, anyway, so yeah, Junk Shop uh, Glam, it's uh, it's become uh, kind of better known now. I think it's a decent profile as a collecting 
genre, but when we started in 96 for Velvet Tin Mine, or 95, can't remember, um, it was just beginning to sort of break ground. I think quite a few people had started to collect some of these seven inches. And then there were articles in Record Collector, and then there was one in The Guardian, and it, it then became a thing. So because of that, we then put the Velvet Tin Mine together to sort of you know coalesce the thinking on well what is junk shop glam and uh and it's gone gone on from there so we did um four in the series and then there was a break and then last year um decided to bring it all back up to date because in that intervening period a lot of the singles uh more singles have been discovered a lot more people talking about it blogs magazines and uh so okay we'll put it all together in all the young drugs which is the three that CD box set that Phil and I put together um, to sort of encapsulate, encapsulate the whole scene as people see it now. The work that, that you've done and, and, and other people who've managed to group certain genres or themes together has helped to define sounds in, in different genres from the 60s and 70s? Yeah, I think that's right. It is a It is a sort of curator's lot, I suppose, hopefully not too pretentious, but to start giving things names and start grouping together um, like-sounding material. And, yeah, other people are doing it, and we certainly weren't the first. I always remember, um, you know, famously now, really, that Phil Smee, who I know you've had on your show, um, invented the term freak beat. It was just something that he had for his Bam Caruso label, which in... By the way, in turn, was a, was a big influence on RPM starting, and um, yes, I think that's a great example for you know that kind of late sixties amalgam of, uh, of beat sounds, pop sounds, and fuzz guitar sounds. So he just invented that term, and and it stuck. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of likewise, in a way, I suppose, junk shot glam has now become a thing, um, you know, because it's something reasonably identifiable. It's something that's also is plentiful. You know, there were an awful lot of singles in the early 70s <laughs> that fit into that, uh, mm. this kind of uh, breakdown. Um, but I, this particular track, uh, I mean, A Little Bit of Soul is one of my favourites. Um, and it, uh, it's actually the writer's favourite as well. Oh. Um, so it's, it's John Carter. and it, it was a bubblegum hit in the States first. And then it got a couple of other versions. And I think since then, a couple of big names have recorded it. Uh, I think Tom Petty's recorded it. Uh, oh, the Ramones, I think, even, if I remember rightly. Anyway, John Carter already said that this was his favourite version, and it was mine too. And I heard it played in a club um, after we'd done Velvet Tin Mine. There were, there were a few sort of glam clubs starting up in London, and somebody somebody else played it. I thought, that's great. I'll dig it out. Then found that John Carter had written it, got in touch with John. And so eventually, yeah, we, we put it on boobs. That single was produced by Ken Lewis, uh, one of the co-writers? That's right, yeah. So they'd had their flowerpot men days and, um, you know, they had a lot of success as writers in the 60s and, and producers and used to produce a lot of kind of studio material where they were actually the band, but they then give it a, a name. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily them that uh, went out on tour or played live or what have you. It's kind of well, quite well known uh, now. Yeah, it carried on into the 70s for, for both of them. Although I think John started to make a bit more money doing jingles. So, you know, a lot of 70s jingles are John Carter or Madeleine Bell or um, Claire Torrey. 
you know, it's all the same people. But anyway, yeah, uh, John Carter, Ken Lewis, yeah, actually, you know, scratch the surface and, and you'll find a lot of late 60s, early 70s productions. It's them. Our next track is Sweet and Tender Romance by the McKinleys. I think that's going back a decade to 1964. But am I right that there is a link with Carter Lewis? Well, that's right. It's uh, Mr. Carter again. Uh, so it's a Scottish pair, uh, sisters, the McKinleys. I think this was just one of the one of the songs that John was writing when he was in Denmark Street. So they got the Carter Lewis and the Southerners with Jimmy Page on guitar as an act. And then John was starting to earn as much, if not more, as a songwriter mm. on Denmark Street. And, you know, typical Tim Pan Alley stuff of going in, knocking out tunes in the basement and then seeing if you can get covers, see if the publisher could get covers. And John, I think, was with Southern Music at the time, now Pier. And yeah, this this was one of them. Um, and I really like it for it. Uh, it's got Jimmy Page on it, and it has that really choppy guitar sound mm. and uh, a great attack to it. And it, they're quite fiery, the sisters, when they're singing it as well. So it's my favourite version of that song, that there are others. But the point of that one is also that it was part of another series we became very, we became very much associated with, which was the kind of Brit girl sound, um, UK female artists of the 60s. And that one, that track's on volume three. It was called Back Home and Beat. And we did eight in the series in the end. Um, with a number of people contributing. I, you know, I was just trying to bring different features of the, the Brit girl sound um, onto each of the different volumes. Um, and we eventually finished up again, like the Junk Shot Glam series. I, I wanted a kind of defining bookend, so we had a three CD set come out two years ago called "Am I Dreaming," mm. um, which did the same job. It kind of, you know, no, no repeats from the other eight volumes, but it was all the stuff that people have been collecting since. So we put it into that one set. I had um, Howie Casey on recently, and I think uh, Sheila McKinley became Howie's wife. Oh, you know more than me then. Yeah, okay, is that is that the Liverpool Howie Casey? Yeah, yeah, and he um, became saxophonist for Paul McCartney and Wings. That's it. Yeah, Bluebird. He's well known for Bluebird. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing to be known for, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, Sheila's no longer with us, unfortunately, um, but Howie is still in uh, fine fettle. Excellent. Good on him.
now we uh, go over to France, and uh, I don't know if uh, your pronunciation is better than mine, Mark. Uh, my my Yorkshire to uh, <laughs> Francais twang is uh, appalling. I'm going to attempt this. C'est tout lettre la, uh, Sylvie Vata? Uh, yeah, yeah, close. <laughs> <laughs> Please correct me. C'est lettre la. Right. Just c'est tout rather than tout. Uh, ah. Yeah, I mean... Um, a couple of reasons for putting this one in. Uh, one, been a long time fan of Sylvie Vartan that goes right back to, um, I don't know how old you are, but in my day, all the uh, French mm. uh, school books that we had, they had uh, to represent popular culture in France in the 70s, but talking about earlier, it would either be Sylvie Vartan or, or Johnny Halliday. And so I kind of grew up with the photograph yeah. of Sylvie Vartan making who is this person? And then eventually getting to hear her records and, and collecting, etc. Um, So, yeah. And then listening to a lot of Sylvie Vartan, she was quite a strong influence on um, kind of, you know, RPM, uh, kind of aesthetic, if you like. And then uh, years later, Kieran Tyler, the uh, journalist for Mojo, Arts Desk and, and other places, um, we got together working on some RPM things. And he'd been a contributor to a number of compilations and at the same time as he was uh, you know a, an expert on uncertain 60s music i then discovered that he was also a, a, an expert on french music of that period and uh, he'd been to france a lot been to a lot of uh, music conferences etc got a lot of contacts out there and we just evolved this idea of having an rpm international it used to be a pie international so let's have an rpm international and run that as a as a series within RPM, and so the first collection we put together was this one, Sylvie Vartan, which just covers sixty five to sixty eight. It was the first, at the time it was the first ever British collection of of a kind of kind of grooviest music really um, of the sixties cuts, and it included um, songwriters like Mick Jones, um, later famous with Foreigner. So she had quite an interesting story. Uh, from that period as well. And it's a weird thing. as we, we did a number of French releases and we tried to get the French Music Bureau, Export Bureau involved, thinking, oh yeah, you know, they'd, they'd be interested in we're promoting French music over here. Let's, you know, join forces a bit more. And they weren't really that interested. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, we'll promote French music in France, but <laughs> we won't know it worked that hard elsewhere. <laughs> other than French-speaking territories. So obviously, uh, Eastern Canada in particular, I mean, they speak French all over Canada, but in Eastern Canada in particular, big French enclave, promotion going on there. But in other parts, such as uh, Britain, it, it had really been, you know, kind of left under the carpet. And it's up to, it's, it's people like us and Ace Records that start to pull these things out and say, as you know, you, I think you'll find there's an awful lot more people interested in your music than you realise. Anyway, that's what that was about, starting RPM International. And we didn't just do France. We, we did quite a few releases from uh, Sweden, Targes and Hepcats and a compilation called Svenska Shakers. Um, but we went to Norway and Denmark and then we branched out to some Dutch bands, The Outsiders. Where else did we go? Uh, Boots. Yeah, Boots from Germany we did. Uh, and then we started to go further afield and did Milton Nascimento from Brazil. Yeah, or a couple of bands from Japan, the Mops we did. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was quite a groovy series, actually. I can't remember how many we did, about 30-odd titles. 
just kind of anywhere, anything that wasn't recorded in America or the UK, but was kind of running concurrently with those scenes that, you know, kind of get written about a lot. Yeah. So we ran RPM International and, and Sylvie Votto was the first one. to a soundtrack and uh, uh, Les Reed uh, Girl on a Motorcycle such an evocative track this and um, the Girl on a Motorcycle being a, a very um, renowned film kind of 1968 Marianne Faithful that very famous poster yeah. leather um, outfit that Mar- Marianne wore yeah yeah absolutely and there's a I think we put a photograph in the um, uh, it was one of the stills that's how we put it in the inlay and I think I can't I can't remember if Simon put this annotation or the annotation goes with the picture. And I think it um and it's the director with the cameraman leaning over Marianne <laughs> as she's in that outfit and it just says skin me <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, once seen never forgotten. But soundtracks were another theme. we didn't do as many as I kinda hoped. Mm. When we did that one in about ninety seven, eight 
I thought it would be, you know, the start of many because at that time um, there was, if you remember the whole easy uh, lounge core movement and that branched into soundtracks and 60s soundtracks yeah. in particular were, were real currency. Mm. And um, we managed to get a few away. We, um, here we go around the Mul- Mulberry Bush, uh, up, up the junction we did oh, as yeah. well. A couple of uh, John Barry soundtracks. And I thought, yeah, here we go, let's do it. It was actually very hard to get the rights. And uh, it kind of stifled us. And in fact, here we go around the Mulberry Bush. We put it out, uh, it sold really quickly. And then equally quickly, we had to withdraw it because Mm. Turner MGM came after us. And although we'd licensed the music correctly from people who own the copyrights, they said, no, we've got the rights to that music mm. as a soundtrack. So the, and some of the imagery and uh, when it appears together as a soundtrack, they had the rights to that, even though we could license all the music from other um, parties. So, yes, unfortunately, uh, I learned a bit of a lesson there. Uh, and at that time, Turner MGM then did a big deal with a lot of the old United Artists soundtracks um that came out through Riker disc at the time it stemmed the flow um we would have done a load more and then other in other cases soundtracks back then because they were just kind of add-ons to the movie it's very unclear as to what happened to the rights um they didn't always go with the film so anyway going on the motorcycle was great we got that one away i got to know les reed um, and I worked with him ever since that, that day, actually. And he, he's another one who sadly passed away uh, last year. But I did a few things with Les down the year, uh, down the years. Um, uh, but going on a motorcycle was the first one. We later did um, Beta Collector Bill Size. That's right, I remember. But yeah, going on a motorcycle was great. Now, the, the version of the track I've sent you uh, is, um, or we have to play, is a fan got in touch once we put the uh, album out. Mm. and um, he said, love what you've done, it's fantastic, uh, but I'm just going to send you this edit, and he sent the whole soundtrack, but without the extraneous noises in, uh, because it's quite a groovy, there's lots of Hammond organ and quite a groovy sound to it, uh, and big brass on the uh, on the soundtrack as well, and he called it uh, Girl on a Motorcycle with all the ruckus removed. So, <laughs> so the version of the theme that you have to play there is... Seen from going on a motorcycle with all the ruckus removed. (laughs) See what you make of it.
Now we have a song that I think everyone will be familiar with, but they won't necessarily be familiar with this particular version, and it's Duffy Powers' version of I Saw Her Standing There, and I think this was released just a few months after the Beatles original? Yes, yeah. Again, there's a a little story with that particular recording. Duffy, big fan of, uh, met him a few times, and we worked on three projects with him. Uh, no, actually, put it out four times. That's right. Yeah, two big uh, double CD projects in particular, kind of telling the story of his career. A really underrated performer, particularly in the kind of folk blues idiom. Although a lot of people knew about him in the 60s, mm. um, he never quite had the breakthrough so that his profile was was like big enough to be you know remembered by everybody. But anyway, back in 63... And uh, he's in the clubs with the Graham Bond quartet, you know, like the coolest R&B outfit ever. And they score a session at Abbey Road. Um, Duffy had just come out of the Larry Palms stable and uh, and had firmly got the blues. And he was playing the local London scene, harmonica and vocals, and really exploring blues and R&B. So he was the one kind of who got the Abbey Road session and brought in Graham Bond. They were given this to record, but when they first recorded it, it's uh, alleged that John and Paul deemed it too jazzy and refused to let it be released unless they re-recorded it, hmm. which they did. And yes, it came out just after the Beatles, a uh, short time after. But it's quite a different version. It's sped up. It's um, kind of neater, if you like. So the version um, that you have to play is the original version, the, the deemed too jazzy version. Uh, and you get a real sense of Duffy and Graham as they might have been in uh, one of the London clubs had you been there. For those that don't know, it's, it's worth noting who was in the Graham Bond quartet. I mean, it was su- such a brilliant lineup in, in that 63-64 period. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, particularly uh, with John McLaughlin uh, on guitar mm. and um, Jack Bruce 
and Ginger Baker. That's right. Yeah. It's not I mean, a bad band. <laughs> <laughs> not bad. Not bad. Yeah, you can have a bit of fun there, I think. Much of this 60s material was released almost 20 years ago on a, was it Leapers and Sleepers compilation? It was. That we did, That was the first one. The second one was called Vampers and Champers. But the first one, which took him into the early 70s and working with uh, the likes of uh, Rod Argent, mm. um, it does include some kind of more experimental jazz styles. Well, not experimental jazz, but um, modern jazz styles because he was playing with British jazz musicians then. But the first one, uh, Leapers, Leapers and Sleepers, takes him from immediately after the Larry Parnes period with his um, first solo EMI sessions in 62 and then kind of really through his peak creative time up to 66. But anyway, around 64 to 66, he recorded a load of sessions for Marquis Music, who were a publisher uh, and a production house as well. The zombies were connected to them. And uh, really creative stuff. As I say, he got the blues. He was playing uh, the main clubs, and um, he'd got the likes of John McLaughlin and um, uh, Danny Thompson. Thompson, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd always got great players with him. Oh. Kind of a lot of emotion and feeling in uh, Duffy's singing and his vocalization, and then some really good harmonica playing too. So that's what Leapers and Sleepers uh, brings together, and it's it's a really worthwhile collection. Just yeah, he was he was a great guy, Duffy. Standing 
now we have Samantha Jones and uh, TC Fiend. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So Samantha Jones belongs to the uh, the Brit Girl series, which we call Dream Babes, yeah. and she was on the very first one. And from that and some other things, we then did a spin. We did two spin-offs, uh, which collected her recordings, so United Artists recordings, and then separately her Penny Farthing. Uh, recordings when she recorded with uh, Larry Page. During the United Artists years, you get the stomping Northern Soul classics surrounded by a ray of sunshine mm. uh, and a number of others because she went to the States and recorded with um, Arnie Goland, who, who was um, Phil Spector's right hand man. So she got some amazing cuts there. But back in the UK, working with Larry, uh, one of the productions was to record an advert for. Ford cars. I think it's uh, Ford Taunus. Ah. Uh, so it was a, a European model, not a not a British model or a, an American model. And uh, there were two versions of this TC theme, uh, which was just a, a promo seven inch. It didn't get released anywhere else. Um, but it was just a really nice soaring piece of seventies pop advert music with Samantha in full flight. This is about 1970? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So she was recording with um, Chris Eif and uh, Mark Wirtz as writers because Mark had a deal with Larry at the time uh, for Penny Farthing. Mark, commercial success over in France and Belgium and that area? Yeah, I I kind of get the feeling that Penny Farthing as a whole was more successful over there. Uh, Had artists like Kincaid who had uh, hits on main, in mainland Europe that, that didn't overhear. And Sam used to sing at a lot of uh, the song festivals. So we, we kind of only know the Eurovision Song Contest here. But in mainland Europe, you get uh, things like the San Remo Song Festival. And a lot of publishers would put their new material through and Sam would do a lot of these. So I think her profile was much better through just being over there, really, just being in front of people and, and getting big songs away as well. She had a hit with a, a version of My Way. <laughs> Not my favourite version of My Way, uh, but she did. She managed it anyway. But that was kind of like the standing she had in mainland Europe. And then uh, I think in Holland, I think she uh, had a couple of hits too. Uh, really good career, really interesting career. And she then went on to, uh, later on, she had a... A, a singing coaching business. Um, it was not vocal coaching, but actually kind of training singers. And one of them was Jay McDonald, TV to this day. Oh 
from TC Fiend by Samantha Jones and Elmer Hocker. Love is happening to me. Am I right that the tie is Mark Wirtz again? Very good, Jason. Very good. It's like I'd set you a quiz, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I'm passing it. <laughs> You're fine colours. Yeah, yeah, spot on with that. Yeah, again, stemming from our work in the 90s, we've got this other little series going, which came out of the Easy Lounge Core, I say genre for want of a better term, but a kind of trend, I suppose. And um, so I started a series called Mood Mosaic, as we were talking off air, uh, Alan Hawkshaw that you've interviewed. He was one person that we also uh, focused on for that series. Brian Bennett with his KPM library recordings was another one. And there's a big Jim Sullivan um, album for The Wolf um, that we did combined with something else called Sitar Beat. But uh, back at the very beginning, there was Mark Wirtz and his uh, original uh, mood mosaic moniker that he'd used for A Touch of Velvet. And um, that was the first yeah. the first one we did in, in that particular series. But even before that, there was a conversation between myself and Phil Smee about um, Mark Wirtz's recordings, Phil being a massive collector of that period. I can't remember how it was. I think there was an article in Record Collector and we were just kind of looking at it and it was connected to Mark and the thought just sprung up. Oh my God. So there's the theme to the Teenage Opera. Uh, that's the excerpt from Teenage Opera. And then let's listen to those other tracks that Mark recorded in 67 when he was a staff producer at EMI and Phil got a, a lot of those singles. Don't they all sound like they fit together? And so from that, we constructed what we perceived to be a teenage opera. So we put together the teenage opera, which had you know, never existed before. There were just these disparate uh, tracks. Got in touch with Mark Wirtz and, and put it to him to say, all right, this, this, is, this collection isn't the teenage opera uh, because it didn't happen back then, but possibly it's a teenage opera. And uh, he very graciously uh, endorsed our proposal. And so we came out with a teenage opera. And then uh, it, it went very well. We had a launch at Abbey Road Studios. Jeff Emmerich came along because uh, he was an engineer at the time on those sessions. Um, Keith West came. 
uh, and, and a number of other people. And it was, you know, it was really successful. Really, really proud of that uh, production. It was good to construct of that. And I want, but I wanted to carry on with more of Mark's story. So we then produced a follow-up collection called the fantastic story of mark works and the teenage opera and we put on a lot of the other uh, productions that mark had worked on before the keith west single except from teenage opera grocer jack and things that he recorded afterwards and you can really hear how mark builds up um his repertoire of production sounds before uh, grocer jack and then how he reused a lot of the motifs afterwards so a lot of the other work that he was recording as well and elmer hockett which came out in uh 68 i think it's if i remember rightly it came out on the other side of shalalali i think we put it uh, it certainly put it in the compilation at the same uh, place uh shalalali also credited to simon and pie it's all it's mark words basically but the, uh, this track love is happening to me elmer hockett He's uh, done as a backing track before as uh, Love Will Always Find A Way because Mark had sent me uh, some acetates that he'd kept from his time at Abbey Road when he was recording um, Keith West and Steve Howe and uh, Twink because they they were all doing um, side projects to Tomorrow as extra singles. And he'd got a lot of these backing tracks that he'd developed. And, uh, and one of them was Love Always Run Away. And it was clearly, you know, intended for some, either one of those projects or the Teenage Opera. And then a year later, he then produces Love Is Happening To Me, Elmer Hockett. And it's the same backing track, but he's now got vocals on it. And he's added a few other things as well. So that's the story behind that Elmer Hockett track. Thank you. 
And now we go to uh, we we now go over to the states and uh, a, a change of a sound, something a bit more soulful and uh, break my mind uh, by Bobby Wood. I think nineteen sixty seven. This one. Yes, yes. So it is a it is a leap from where we've been uh, <laughs> in uh, uh, Denmark Street and uh, Carnaby Street, etc. Um, so I've like a lot of people, I've really got into the country soul sound that. Um, yeah. that people are putting out on compilations. Um, there was a really good series um, that was called, I think it was actually called Country Got Soul. Uh, and then from that, things like New Highway, Testifying, the Country Soul Review. Those collections of late 60s, early 70s, uh, Southern Fried Country, but it's got a, it's recorded in... Uh, Muscle Shoals or Memphis or you know it, it's got horns on it it's got um, organ on it you know it's kind of uh, and particularly the American Sound Studios Chips Moman um, what he was recording where Dusty went and where Aretha went it's that kind of real crossover potpourri of styles I personally really got into all of that other people were doing the compilations but I really got into that sound and then uh, sometime later uh, I just had this opportunity to be uh, in touch, to, to go and look for Bobby Wood, um, because I was doing uh, I was doing some work for um, uh, people who own the Joy label, and um, Bobby had uh, recorded a load of singles uh, as a solo artist in the early mid '60s for Joy. So I put together this collection on Bobby, and then got to speak to him, and then sort of just exchanged a lot of uh, information and, and what have you. And through that learning that he had then played at American Sound Studios. So after his um, doing his singles, um, by the end of 65, 66, he had then started to record with Chips Moment. And, and linking that, linking Bobby to the stuff that I'd been hearing on all these other compilations was fantastic. It was, it was like opening up another door as I got to hear his stories and uh, of who we play with and other sounds that he'd been on. And this particular track, Break My Mind, is uh, it's after Joy, and uh, he go, he's gone to, well, they came out on MGM, uh, these singles, and he's just starting to explore what we now know is that kind of country soul sound. And Break My Mind, I thought, was just a, quite, a, quite a neat example. It actually leads into another track that we've got in this list, which is uh, Roy Hamilton. This is Roy Hamilton from 69, also recording at American Sound Studios, and Bobby Wood is playing on, I think it's organ and piano, on this Roy Hamilton track as well. And Bobby Wood played with Elvis, and Elvis was a massive fan of Roy Hamilton. Mm. And the tracks, I'm talking about two tracks in one here, but yeah. um, the track we've got for Roy Hamilton is Angelica, which Roy and Elvis were in the studio at the same time, well, neighboring studios, but in American Sound Studios. And uh, and Angelica was offered by chips to Elvis, and he said, "No, no, no Roy's got to do it. Give it to Roy." And so it's Roy that's doing that song, but you have Bobby Wood playing on it, and he'd played with both the artists. So it was all it was all a nice tie-up, and it was wonderful to actually have some of that period, and particularly American Sound Studios, uh, coming out on releases through RPM. I'll come back to Roy later, but sticking with Bobby, um, the other thing that uh, particularly and it's kind of relevant more to me rather than rpm but in terms of 
you know, uh, what what I'm going on to is um, uh, I book a lot of live music in the Oxford area, and uh, a lot of the sounds that we artists that we work with are in the Americana field. And a lot of those artists, particularly English ones, are going over to Nashville to write, to kind of get a bit of magic fairy dust um, sprinkled across their songs. And we've worked with a couple of particular artists. One is Els Bailey, who's just won an award at the Americana Music Festival, in fact, last week, for a song she wrote with, yes, you've guessed it, Bobby Wood. She went over to Nashville and recorded with Dan Auerbach and Bobby and came out with this particular song on her last album and it's just won this award. And Bobby um, has a sort of co-production deal with Dan um, over there. And I, I just love how he's still in the game and he's still influencing artists today. So that's why you have uh, Break My Mind by Bobby Wood in your playlist. <laughs> <laughs> about uh, Roy Hamilton then? Oh yeah, so he's a fantastic vocalist who kicked off in the late 50s, more a kind of crooner back then, but uh, was he could he could sing any style basically, he was that good, and as I say, from right back then he was an influence on Elvis. We we did uh, two collections on uh, Roy, and they, did, they cross everything, Northern to Southern Soul, uh, he's known for Cracking Up, which is a over you, cracking up over you that's right a big floor filler 
But he, as I say, he covered a number of styles. But the other reason for including um, uh, Trapped by Roy in there is it, it was on the Shout series. So for 70, 80, I think it was 80 releases, um, I had a side series called Shout Records, which I ran with Clive Richardson. And it was so named because he'd had a fanzine in the very early 70s all about Shout Music. Oh, shout music, soul music. <laughs> and uh, Clive it was a contemporary of uh, Dave Godin and a number of others in the 60s. They, they were the first ones to run, and Dave McAleer, they were the first ones to run fanzines about soul and R&B music, uh, particularly in London, because they go see all the visiting artists and then meet them at the airport, because you, you could do that then, uh, and get your interviews, and, and then they you know, type them all up on a typewriter and staple the pages together and off you go. And, and that's what Shout magazine was uh, for Clive. And then years later when we got together, I, I think I'd used uh, Clive to write some sleeve notes a couple of times uh, on another project. And yeah, just in discussion, I said, something I'd like to do is really kind of delve into your um, knowledge about uh, soul and R&B because I know there are a couple of catalogues I can get access to um, SSS International for example um, had a good range of uh, mid late 60s soul and uh, and so we just hatched this plan to, to run a spin-off label uh, it was not a spin-off label it was just kind of like a side series to RPM and Roy was one of the artists on there but yeah, I mean, Clive, fantastic. It took me down all sorts of avenues, learned loads about kind of black America and uh, artists that, that that period introduced me to loads of names. So, it's, yeah, some really good stuff. It wasn't all Northern Soul. That was the good thing. It was Southern Soul. It was Deep Soul. It was R&B. Uh, we did some gospel as well. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's a series worth checking out. Angelica, that was one of the fat last recordings that, that Roy did? Sad, yes. Um, so something like April 69, and he died in July 69, something like that. Um, very tragic. But happily, Clive was in touch with his uh, children, so they were involved when we did these two compilations. Um, and, yeah, we're very happy to have it out. And in fact, I think, they, I think they lent us some of the photographs that are in the booklet as well. So it was nice to nice to honour him. Each night I meant to say I miss her through the day, but I'd forget it. I never said it. I'd pass the flower shop. Lord knows I meant to stop, but I'd say tomorrow, perhaps tomorrow, tomorrow there'd be time. There'd always be another spring. Time to make her laughter ring. Time to give her.
I spoke her name and held her knee She couldn't hear me The shadow had been cast Too many springs had passed For Angelica Sweet Angelica Now in my continue on that sort of soulful side of things and we have uh, the minute my back was turned by roger, roger pace. pace yeah roger pace i knew nothing about this bloke until a year ago in fact i don't know an awful lot more now but it came out of a a big project uh, again i was really proud of last year i mentioned earlier the owners of joy records so that's that is president records who own all of that uh the box set is called new york graffiti and roger's tracks on disc four and it's a it's the story of the American labels that were that came from publishers, all centered around um, the area of New York that the Brill Building's in on um, uh, on Broadway, and right. they had got uh, from this this set covers from fifty eight to sixty eight, and they'd got these um, systems as as is quite well known of you have everything in one building so you'd have, you'd have the songwriter you'd have an artist you'd have a publisher you'd have a radio plugger you'd have a label and it'd all be there and uh, you could just almost go from room to room so i i put together this collection which told the story of this specific collection of labels that all came to be owned by edward kasner ah yes and uh so there's Joy Music and Seville Music, Select, Jewel, Golf, another couple on President US itself. And uh, it's absolutely fascinating, covered every single American pop style at the time as each entity was you know, trying to have a hit in those different fields. Mm. But there's a lot of songs that they, the song was king then. So a lot of songs were cut by lots of different artists. Mm. Uh, and that's very interesting. And yeah, and yeah Edward Kersner at the time over in, in London was uh, discovering Ray Davies and uh, recording him with Larry Page yeah. and Shell Tommy. And he had deals with all these people. He had deals with uh, Dick Rowe, who was uh, Decker over here. So, yeah, working on a lot of uh, UK stuff. But he, he didn't really have a label here until 66 when the symbols came out. It's the in September. Uh, but prior to that, it was all about publishing. And then in America, he was far more active and uh, um, far more successful up to that time anyway. And yeah, so New York Graffiti is the story of that period, Broadway, Brill Building, just uh, an amazing array of artists that went through that. And a lot of them, you know, went on to fame and fortune, 
Gordon Lightfoot went through there. Neil Diamond, which is on this box set, his first single was Neil and Jack. Mm. Um, that, that went through the the doors as well. And yeah, Roger Pace track. I uh, just loved it when I heard it. Since discovered it, again, it's got a Northern Soul thing about it. Mm. And if anybody out there knows more about Roger Pace, do let me know. Yeah, because I don't think there was there was much released at the time by him. No, I get the feeling that it was probably aimed. He was more of a balladeer. It was one of those accidental right. things. Listening to other stuff around that period from the same source, um, whereby you know ballads were getting a, a bigger production sound. And occasionally you'd get something that was a bit more up-tempo, a bit more of a beat backing. That's why I think this one was probably originally intended to go. You know, they came out with something else altogether. go to Mortimer uh, one of my favorite RPM releases of, of the last few years and it's uh, you do too which I th- was on the on our way home release which I think was Mortimer's unreleased second album that's right yeah yeah that's right I think the first one was Phillips mm. and this was the unreleased second one that had um, sat on the shelf in the vaults at uh, Apple uh, from 68 to whenever it was we put it out when did we put it out two years ago so yeah a good long time I partly put it in for its own sake but also because the release came together through a connection with Stefan Grenados in the States who had written a book years ago all about Apple Music Publishing yeah I've got so that. a lot of people 
yeah, a lot of people knew about Apple Records, the label, but not so many about the whole publishing empire, which was part of all those companies that the Beatles started in 67, um, you know, when they were at, uh, at the offices in Baker Street. You know, all kinds of things that were going on there. But one was publishing and, you know, it was uh, really proactive. They signed loads of people. But a lot of the material yeah. didn't get to see the light of day. But I'd done a five-album series over time with Stefan, which focused on um, the recordings that were made by the publishing company. Some of them got released, but not all of them. So you had the Ivies, you had uh, oh. Grapefruit, and then a whole bunch of others, the Focal Point, yeah, and a lot of others that, that or even, um, yeah, so Gallagher and I were writers there, yeah. and we had some of their early demos as well. So I had this series, it, uh, yeah, it was, it was really well received, and um, all about the publishing uh, side of things. And then, then it came to light through this that the Mortimer tapes were still there at Apple. We'd done Lon and Derek Van Eaton, we'd done their album. So A, we knew that Apple were okay to talk to and that they would talk to us uh, and it was possible to license from them. Uh, B, all the releases for the Apple label stuff had happened through EMI and they weren't going to follow up with what had just been publishing things. So we did a long and Derek Van Eaton and then uh, we just said, well, if you don't ask the question, you're not going to get. So we asked the question, how about that Mortimer album, which Stefan had found out that the tapes were still there. And uh, happily, the relationship was good enough that they, they kind of trusted us and let us have access. So they, had, they gave us access to that and a whole store of photographs that Peter Asher had taken at the time. And then uh, one of the guys in Mortimer lives in London, even better, uh, Tony. So I got in touch with Tony and uh, met up with him. We produced the... Uh, the album with with tony because we kind of needed a bit of artist mm. not just blessing but input for how it should look and when we were getting it mastered you know just how it should sound so we very much did it with um tony's input yeah really pleased with with how it mm. came out so so yeah I, I put that track in for mortimer's own sake but also kind of representing the whole Apple Music Publishing series that we did. I wrote a piece on Focal Point for Ugly Things magazine. Oh, yeah. I uh, spent quite a lot of time with uh, one one of the band, uh, Dave Slater. This may have happened to Mortimer as well with Focal Point, is that they were, you know, <laughs> they thought they were going to be the, the next big thing and in contact with uh, members of the Beatles. Oh, yeah. Kind of left to stew. And then about after a year or so, they're kind of living on bread and water. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I've heard that story as well from other mm. artists. And uh, and the Focal Point recorded some cracking yeah. stuff. In a way, it's a real shame they weren't with another setup um, so that they would have got pushed further. Mm. But yeah, and the Mortimer had the same story that, you know, um, Tony had his encounter with uh, George Harrison and kind of like the, the seal of approval uh, was given by George Swanny into the room mm. saying hello. He said, yeah, really like it, sign it, and Swanning out again. That was it. So he got the deal. But in terms of yeah. getting a push or mm. any more interest, there was no more. And in fact, I mean, unfortunately for Mortimer, their, their story really bit the dust when, um, uh, you know, Brian Epstein had died and Alan Klein came on board and, and had a completely different business approach to how Apple should yeah. be run. And so it was, I think the Ivy's album came out and then it, everything after that had been scheduled 
got canned and the next album to be released was due to be Mortimer, but it got canned. So so it never did. But even things that did get released, you're right. They were they were so busy, pulled in different directions, had so many different interests buzzing around them all the time. It's such an intense period that um what they like today, they then like something else tomorrow, I presume. I've never asked them. Oh. <laughs> Our final track and uh, we're coming a bit more up to date 2014 this time and uh, Dave Edmonds and again which is I think the title track of his album not a reissue and it was actually Dave's first album of new material in 20 years at the time is that correct? Absolutely right he'd uh, moved to the States in the 80s and then been there 20 years and then came back and hadn't recorded anything new 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 
uh, until we got together and he, he put some tracks together. Uh, some of again, uh, just to be fully confessional, uh, had been out in America, um, about five or six tracks. Um, but then the rest we, he recorded in, in Wales where he moved back to. Um, so it was the first thing that, sorry, first material that had been released that was brand new by Dave at that point. I mean, he's, he's, he's just right up there in my, uh, pantheon. He's my favorite artist. I've just, it's something about the R and B, his feel for R and B that I really liked. He, he doesn't rate himself that highly, uh, cause he thinks he's just a, he says he's just a Chuck Berry interpreter. Uh, but he's a whole lot more. There is a Dave Edmonds sound, and, and in the 70s, um, I absolutely sparked on that. Love R&B anyway, and then his version of it, really like it as well. And he's incredibly knowledgeable about uh, everything 50s and 60s um, from certain records onwards. And he put that into his music. So it was uh, it was really great to finally get speak with him and, and work on a couple of projects. I'd even put um, a co- collection together in uh, it's something like 1989 and something not terribly clever uh, called chronicles which was just a broad-based compilation on dave stuff i put that together for kind of Sir collection so i'd had one stab but i didn't get to speak to him then so it's some time later and i did a, an expanded version of subtle as a flying mallet because i found that had been out of print for a while and i knew it was a couple of bonus tracks and stuff so that was the first, that was the entry point doing subtle again and there's a little side note I live in in the Cotswolds in West Oxfordshire, and it's quite near to Chipping Norton. There's a hotel called the Crown and Cushion, and it was once owned by Keith Moon. And when Dave was recording "That'll Be the Day," and Keith Moon uh, was there, part of the 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 film group, as it were, they they got to know each other well. And there's a photograph of Dave and Keith in the Crown and Cushion leaning on the bar when Keith owned it. And uh, I, <laughs> I really liked that photo. Hmm. It was just like a really hmm. cool link. Anyway, so we're working on the uh, Subtle as a Flying Mallet. And then, yeah, just talked to Dave, you know, what else you got in the can? It'd be nice to do some more. And then we're talking about, well, we could put out something new-ish uh, with stuff he'd had in the States and then these, these new recordings. And I really liked the idea of, again, um, it, because it kind of, it's a sort of reissue type thing, you know, oh, here we go again, <laughs> it's about relationship, but, um, and him making the same old mistakes, but I kind of like, well, here we go again, you know, let's put the whole thing back out again. So I, I don't know, I, it kind of resonated a bit, uh, with just doing, uh, reissues, but, uh, it was, it was a chance to work with Dave and it's a good up tempo rocking track. And I made a video, the only video I've ever made, I brought Dave over to Oxford and we went into a, sound studio and i filmed him there and uh, it was just a really great campaign i mean you're you're right to to pick me up that it's a new release a new recording because that's not what rpm was about and i think i've only done it twice in two other places where we've had tracks um on compilations that were brand new at the time i think he released um some covers or some instrumentals uh a few years back, but he's now kind of retired or I haven't heard any, anything. Yeah, that's right. No, he's, he has literally hung up his guitars. I've, I've uh, kept in touch with Dave, been over there a few times and his guitars are now in one room, but on the side and he didn't touch them. Hasn't played for two to three years. Most definitely retired. So, so very sad. Yeah. The, um, 
the on guitar collection was just uh it was a coda really a- again is the last album album yeah and the on guitar it was it just came out of a conversation of dave at the time was practicing a lot finger picking style he was really enamored by the likes of mel travis and jerry reed and he used to just practice things like the claw uh and then put them into his live set mm. and i just said oh it's perhaps we should just put together something that's a collection of you um playing guitar instrumentals it didn't quite turn out the way i envisaged i thought it would be a cross between the kind of honky tonk uh jerry reed type country picking sound mm. and something a bit more r&b ish you know it was fine it was good you know it, dave is such a consummate musician he played all the all the instruments on all those tracks as he always has done gosh (laughs) it's impressive i mean that that goes right back to i hear you knocking um the the number one Mm. hit in 1970 he played all the instruments on that so that's that's the way he does it and uh before i uh give uh, again by dave edmonds a spin um can i ask you what the final rpm release is the final one uh, in in number and indeed, you know, to come out will be called Supersonics, and it's a collection of junk shop Britpop, and it's come together through a network of people been involved with RPM in the past. So your old favourites, Bob Stanley, Phil King, in conversation with somebody new to RPM but who's been around a while, Martin Green. We're talking about when we did All the Young Droogs, which was the bookend on the junk shop glam scene, um, that in fact, in the Britpop era, there were a load of bands that didn't get an album or didn't have a hit, but there were a lot of good singles. And there was a bit of a scene, you know, kind of, it was originally called the New Wave of New Wave. It didn't get called Britpop until mm-hmm. much later. And so there was a kind of, 92 to 98 there was a progression of a scene lots of bands playing clubs lots of bands bringing out singles and it kind of mirrored the junk shot clown period so the idea started to form that okay maybe there's a collection here and then it also obviously occurred to me that when we started rpm we were looking back 25 years and that took us to because uh, we started in 91 so it took yeah. us back to the mid 60s so that yeah. you know it lent itself to studying the mid 60s for rpm and yes when you look back 25 years now it's the yeah. Britpop era so yeah. it kind of fits that where we started is where we end marvelous and, and you said you're, you're going into a bit of promoting and, and some other projects yeah um the live music promotion is something uh that's been running alongside um, for the last few years. I will spend a bit more time on that now. Again, for me, it's a, it's a little bit full circle because before running a label in the 80s, I used to work for a, a particularly for a distributor called Making Waves, and we used to sell a lot of roots music. It was known for country folk, blues, jazz, uh, etc. And, and we'd sell um, Charlie, Ace, Demon Records, uh, Rounder Records from the States, uh, a, a lot of other uh, topic records for the, for the folk material and some jazz labels as well. So I was very much into roots at that time. And we used to go out in London to Town & Country Club and uh, The Mean Fiddler and all those places that had those kind of people you saw Towns Van Zandt when he came over, you know, all, all, all kinds of artists. Yeah. And when um, Americana kind of got going with Dwight Yoakam and Steve Earle and, and a bunch of people coming over, 
So I was kind of into it then, and then I've kind of gone into the reissue world in such a deep way for the last 29 years. <laughs> I forgot about all of that. But when I started to get into live music promotion, I found that Americana is a big, mm. uh, it's not big, but I mean, it's a popular genre again. It's getting into the Americana sounds of today and, and, and putting on the gigs. And we've now started a festival called uh, Over the Hill, which is not necessarily about my age. It's more to do with the John Martin track. Well, uh, all the best on, on the, all those uh, projects. And uh, I guess the point is um, get the albums while they're in stock, ultimately. Yes, um, yeah, a good chunk of the catalogue is still available through Cherry Red Records, uh, who've been uh, marketing, distributing the label for the last 20 years. And uh, so a lot, a lot of it is still there. Um, I, there was an RPM way. So there, is a, there was a way that we put things together. There were things that we did that possibly other people wouldn't do, um, just trying to explore the undergrooves, if you like, of the industry, particularly in the in the sixties and the seventies. So, yeah, the, the, there's a lot of good stuff to uh, that you can still go and discover. All right, well, uh, pleasure yeah. talking to you, Mark, and uh, thanks so much for your time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jason. Okay, all the best. Wait.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's ten years since I started the podcast, and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.